Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a special presentation on the Michael Spurconish program on Sirius XM's POTUS, channel 124. This is a Sirius XM town hall with 2024 Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr., live from the historic Center Theater in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Here I am. Here's Michael Smirkanish. It's a privilege for me to have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in the house, as they say. Welcome to Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Philly Burbs, by the way. You, you know the political significance of the Philly Burbs. Yes, in fact, in my hotel room up here, there's a, um, there's a newspaper article that my uncle, President Kennedy, at that time is senator. And I was a year away from being born in 1953, visited here on a campaign trip. So, yeah, I am. I am familiar, and I've campaigned across Pennsylvania many, many times. This is the Center Theater. It's also home to the Charles Bloxon exhibition in African-American studies. Our audience comprised of some listeners who made contributions to that exhibition. I hope you'll get an opportunity before you leave the theater to check it out because it's really special. First question, where's the secret weapon? I thought for sure you'd bring her. Uh, she actually had foot surgery. And so she's limping around, and she could not make it to Pennsylvania, but she will be back on the campaign trail soon enough. How active a role do you expect Cheryl is going to play? She has said that she wants to be very active, and she's a huge asset to me in every aspect of my life. But I think she's probably a lot more popular than I am with the public as well, and particularly with Democrats. (laughs) Robert, can we talk about spasmodic dysphonia before we move forward, because people who are hearing you maybe for the first time, they'll want to know the voice. Tell me about that. I had a very, very strong voice until I was 42 years old. In fact, I, you know, I was on speaking tours at that time, and I could speak to very large audiences, an unusually strong voice without a microphone. And in in 1996, my voice suddenly got very rough and shaky. And um, I, actually what happened is that people were hearing me on TV and they, were, and they started writing me letters saying, you have spasmodic dystonia and you need to see Dr. Andrew Blitzer. A lot, it, was, it, was, it was alarming to me at that time because a lot of people, particularly women, were writing me letters saying it was, um, 
it was really touching to see a man who was willing to cry when he was on TV. And uh, I was like, I wasn't crying. That was that's my voice. <laughs> and I knew, <laughs> and I knew every woman who wrote me that there was like five men who were saying, "Look at this guy crying like a baby." So um, I uh, and then you know, so I, I started doing Botox treatments, which is the only kind of which is an accepted treatment where they give you a Botox shot. In your uh, in your larynx, and they do that every two months. And it's, uh, but I didn't get I didn't get much benefit from it. Although I have no wrinkles on the inside of my throat, <laughs> but I but I um uh, and then I I uh, and so I stopped doing that. And now I've done a couple of things. I went Cheryl and I went over to Japan and had a surgery that they only do in Japan where they put a, um, a titanium bridge between my vocal cords because my vocal cords were so tight that no air could get through and a lot of times my voice would fail completely and believe it or not because as bad as my voice is now it was a lot worse before and the Japanese surgery worked really really well Does it impact you in any other way? Well it just makes it hard to talk and I can't listen to myself like People say, you know, people tell me, um, oh, you have to listen to yourself on TV. You did this show. Like, I will never, it would, I would rather go to a dentist without anesthesia than to listen to this. Well, wait, you know, not this show. Yeah, this, even this, this show. No, no, this hour you're going to want to listen to. It's all the other <laughs> interviews that you've done that you shouldn't. But I can't listen but to it. It doesn't impact your thought process. It no. doesn't impact your physical ability to do the job for which you're running. No, no. It doesn't. I had no idea when we selected this date. I, I had no idea. It was, it was convenience. It was when could we get RFK Jr.? When could we get this special theater? When was I available? I had no idea it was going to be the 55th anniversary of the assassination of your father. Uh, and yet here we sit. And he passed one day later. So I'm making reference to the shooting. One yeah. day later was the passing. Three days after the shooting was the train ride. Chris Matthews was a guest of mine in the last hour of this program because we're kind of old friends. It's a, a Philly thing. And he wrote something that caught my eye as I was doing a, a read-in for interviewing you. He wrote a column a couple of years ago for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he said, Today, that historic train, which once carried RFK, sits lonely in a North Philly car barn, waiting for the next passenger like him to come aboard and alive, someone who can speak as he did of America's defects and divisions, but also of its prospects and ideal unity. The crowds that lined the tracks from Penn Station in New York City to Union Station in Washington, D.C., legendary. You were a young boy. You were aboard. You remember this well, true? Yeah, I was 14 years old. I, I, I was with my dad when he died in Los Angeles um, and then at Samara, Good Samaritan Hospital. And then we brought him back to New York on Hubert Humphrey's plane on White House, too. I mean, on uh, you know, what, USA, or two, USA, too. And, um, and we waked him at St. Uh, Patrick's Cathedral. And then we brought him, as you say, from Penn Station to Washington. And that was a... It was usually a two-and-a-half-hour train ride, but it took seven-and-a-half hours because there were two million people lining the track. And the people, you know, it's a, I, 
you know, I walked through the train um, saying hello to people. It was basically, it was, it was what would have been the next U.S. government was on that train and probably one of the most exciting governments in American history that it would have been. And uh, Coretta Scott King was on it and, you know, all of my father's friends from the campaign and from uh, at other times. But the groups that lined the track was really a, this extraordinary cross-section of the American experience and they were the same kind of crowds that I had seen since I was a boy campaigning. My first campaign was a 1960 campaign with President Kennedy. Um, and I, but it was, they were blacks. I mean, in all of the major stations in Trenton and Newark and Wilmington and Baltimore, there were huge crowds of black, mainly blacks. Uh, and we would slow to a crawl as we went through those stations. And they were, we could hear them singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. In the countryside, it was white, uh, mainly white crowds, but a really big mixture. There were military people in uniform. There were hippies and tie-dye. There was, uh, I remember a group of nuns, about six or seven nuns, standing in the back of a yellow pickup truck, and they were all waving handkerchiefs and rosaries at us. We passed a Little League game where all of the players and all of the, uh, the coaches and the and the people in the stands were standing uh, at attention with their hands at their hearts as we passed. Boy Scout troops, um, men and women, people, women holding up their babies, uh, people holding signs that said, goodbye, Bobby, pray for us, Bobby. Um, and we, we got off in Washington, D.C., and President Johnson was waiting for us at the train station. We brought my father up. Um, uh, past, actually, at that time, the Poor, poor People's Campaign was waiting on the mall. And that was, my, my father and Martin Luther King had hatched this idea that poor people would never get any attention in this country unless they started a political movement. So the two of them had worked together with Marion Wright Edelman to bring thousands of poor people, mainly poor men, to Washington. And they were camping out in shanties on the mall, thousands of them, and they all came to the sidewalk as we passed, as our convoy passed, and they bowed their heads, held their hats against their, their uh, chests, and just stayed silently as we went up the hill to Arlington and buried my dad next to his father. I mean, one of the curious things about that, Michael, is that four years later, I was studying uh, at college in Boston. I was studying political history and I uh, and I came across this demographic data that showed that the majority of those whites who had lined that track in 68 and who had supported my father very strongly during the 68 campaign four years later in 1972 they sided not with George McGovern who was aligned with my father on all these issues but instead with George Wallace who was antithetical to my father in every regard. He was, you know, the, my, my father's biggest political nemesis. He was a, a rabid segregationist, and, you know, he was teaching kind of a gospel of hate. Um, and it struck me then, and it has, uh, it has been confirmed for me many times since, that every individual, every nation, like every individual, has a darker side and a lighter side. 
and that the easiest thing for a politician to do is to appeal to our anger, to our fear, to our bigotry, to our hatred, to the kind of the lower, the darker angels. And that the, the thing that my father tried to do, which is to get us to transcend that narrow self-interest and step outside of, um, of that, you know, of the fear and all those base vibrations and, uh, and you know, see ourselves as part of a community, part of a noble experiment. Do you see yourself as attempting to carry on his work, his vision? Uh, I, I think, you know, one of the principal objectives of my campaign is to and or at least figure out ways to bridge this toxic polarization that is really destroying our country and tearing us apart. Do you agree with me that much of it stems from the media? A lot of it stems from the media, and a lot of it just stems from a complete lack of faith in the government. And, you know, and it's like a parent. If the, if the government is lying to you, if the government is, if the parent is dysfunctional, lying to you, and you've got a lot of kids, they're all going to be fighting each other. If you have a government that you can have faith in, and if the media is, you know, the media is, is no longer what it was, it's no longer, you know, it's no longer part of an existential search, a search for existential truths, and conveying that to the public, it's more, you know, agenda-based media that tends to polarize people. Is your personal cynicism, suspicion, maybe distrust of the media born of the two assassinations? Of uh, the media, I mean, my distrust of the media is because no, media, no, not the media of government of, of government. government. No, I mean, my I've no because I've had, um, you know, I've watched the trustworthiness of government decline steadily since I was a kid, uh, and even you know when when my uncle was assassinated, eighty percent of the people trusted the government. Today it's 22%, and a bunch of things happened. I mean, when I was a kid, it was unimaginable. When I was a little boy, it was unimaginable to most Americans that the government would lie to us. And the first hint that we had that that was occurring was in 1960 when the U-2 went down in Russia. Powers? And Gary Francis Powers, who was the pilot, was supposed to kill himself. Oh, He had a... Um, he had a you know a poison that was in a coin that he was supposed to inject himself rather than be captured because it was not a U.S. Air Force program; it was a CIA program, and it was super secret. And the Russians captured Power, but they kept that quiet. They then publicly accused the, the United States of flying these U-2 missions. And Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, told Eisenhower that they'll never be able to prove it. You should lie about it. And Eisenhower then took that bait and lied to the American public and lied to the rest of the world. And then the Russians produced Gary Francis Powers and everybody for the first time said, oh, holy cow, our government lies to us. Um, by 71, in 1971, the Pentagon Papers were released. And the Pentagon Papers were a, you know, a 26 volume or whatever it was a documentary of how the government was systematically deceiving the American people about the Vietnam War. And I think at that point, there was real mistrust. And then, you know, I spent 40 years suing government agencies Robert, and you... realizing that they, you know, they lied. So I don't think it was a single event that, you know, made me feel that the government is but not trustworthy. I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole given the limited time that we have, but it needs to be said, you 
believe that the assassination of both your uncle and your father were the result of a, I think you've said, 60-year-on war between the family and the CIA. First of all, is that fair, the way I've, I've encapsulated it? Well, I, I think that my uncle was killed because uh, of his opposition to the Vietnam War and his opposition to invading Cuba. And I think he was killed. I mean, it's very well documented. The group of people within the CIA who were involved in his assassination, many of them have confessed. Many of those confessions were deathbed confessions. But not Uh, accepted by the Warren Commission, who believed that Oswald acted alone. Yeah, the Warren Commission, which was run by Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, who wheedled himself onto that commission and then ended up running it and hid the CIA involvement systematically from the commission. But um, after, in 1973, so nine years after the Warren Commission, the U.S. Congress investigated my uncle's assassination, and the U.S. Congress said, no, it was a conspiracy. And and on that commission, which and I know all the members of that commission, Richard Schweitzer, who was the senator, said the CIA killed uh, John Kennedy. And, um, and the, you know, Bob Blakey and the other members of that commission, there was a split because Blakey believed at that time that it probably was the mob because um, there was evidence. That, because they didn't know that the level of collusion between the mob and the CIA, so there was confusion. There was a fight on the commission whether on, on the assassinations committee about whether the mob or the CIA had masterminded because there was such strong evidence against both. But now we've had hundreds of thousands of documents since then that have made it very clear they didn't well, know, the, for example, they did not know that Lee Harvey Oswald was a CIA agent. Nobody knew that for 10 years after the, after the assassination. You know, I, let me make a bigger point. I know that you believe you are being censored in your presidential race, that there are many places where you're just not welcome because they don't want to run a risk of giving RFK Jr. a platform. True. Well, let me ask you this. Yeah. You are, you're, you're addressing that question as if it's my personal idiosyncratic belief. Well, I, I have a different interpretation. <laughs> oh, I, I believe you are being censored in some uh, quarters, but I don't think that's the totality of the explanation. I, I said to this audience before you came today that a person who's commanding 20% in the polls warrants more attention than you are receiving. If someone on the Republican side of the aisle, I'm not talking about Trump and I'm not talking about DeSantis, but if one of the others were at 20 percent, they'd be getting a hell of a lot more attention than they're getting today. So why aren't you? But let me me finish this thought. So why aren't you getting that attention? I'm sure in some quarters you are being censored. I know that that within 24 hours when I interviewed you on CNN, ABC interviewed you and left part of it uh, on the floor. You remember that, right? Yes, I remember okay. that. But here's what I now think is, is a, a larger issue, maybe not larger, but, but deserves some attention. You're a hard interview because every one of these subjects that you're raising, your, your, your uncle's assassination, your father's assassination, the fact that you don't think that Sirhan Sirhan was the killer of your father, damn, I'd love to spend an hour on every one of these. And we haven't even gotten to vaccines nor your platform to run for president of the United States. But it's, it's a tall order as a journalist to speak to you because there's such pressure. Like, are you fact-checking him in re- on real time? Did you hear what he just said about Alan Dulles? And by the way, I have a response to that. But have you given consideration that you are 
intimidating to journalists because they don't want to come out looking like they got the short end of the stick when they had an opportunity to question you. Yes, I absolutely agree that. And I have, um, I have, because I've spent a lot of time studying and writing books, right. um, I, and litigating these issues, I have a very detailed domain knowledge of these areas that make it very, very difficult to defend uh, orthodoxies in a, you know, because I, I just, I know the area so well. So, yeah, it is almost, for, particularly on vaccines, it's almost impossible for anybody to, um, to interview me. Okay, in can I that, try? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So the, 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 simple, the simple version of the thesis is that in the 80s, on Ronald Reagan's watch, Big Pharma was given a degree of liability protection that they didn't enjoy up until that time, and they then ran roughshod over the regulatory bureaucracy, causing lots of vaccines that theretofore had not existed or were not available to the public to be injected, causing a whole host of, of maladies in the populace. How am I doing so far? Perfect. Okay. And one of the things that you point to in particular, and, and this, is, this is where it gets hottest, is autism because of what you've written and what you've said about a link between the vaccination mentality and autism. Reading in on the subject, and I'm no expert, I can't match the way in which you'll quote data, but reading in on the expert, one of the things that I realize is that it's, it's, a, it's a diagnosis not made based on any empirical study. Autism is not something that we determine based on your blood or a CAT scan or an MRI, but rather on behavioral analysis. And when it all of a sudden entered the DSM and was on the minds of more practitioners, and also because now for special education treatment, an autism diagnosis was advantageous to the patient because it meant money and treatment and resources, there was an explanation of sorts as to why something that hadn't been that much known previously would see such a growth. That's the response. Yeah, that's, you know, that was uh, the initial response. You won't hear people from CDC saying that. You'll hear sort of proxies saying that for the industry. The people who, who you know, are kind of um, the, the, uh, the surrogates for the industry. But you won't hear the industry actually saying that. And you won't hear CDC because they know it's a demonstrable uh, propaganda trope that is not true. And let me just tell you the um, short version. The short version of why it's not, you know, that just common sense. If they were, if it was, if the the autism epidemic was a an artifact of diagnostic of new or changing diagnostic criteria or better recognition, you would see it in all age groups. In my age group, 69 years old, the Autism rates in my age group are 1 in 10,000, still. In my children's age group, it's 1 in 34, 1 in 22. Isn't that because it comes with a shorter life expectancy? No. Autism does not have a shorter life expectancy. Down syndrome does. Autism does not. People with autism can live as long as anybody. Now, let me give give you a little bit of details. Because that was a propaganda trope at the beginning, and by the way, they were saying that in, 19, in 2000 or 1995, 1996, when the rates were climbing precipitously from 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 600. So back then they were saying, oh, it's just diagnostic criteria. But, and yet 
every year it gets worse and worse. They can't keep saying it's changing diagnostic criteria. And there have been now so many peer-reviewed studies that have utterly obliterated that uh, propaganda any, any, any that draw a, I mean, I, I read the book. I read, I read the Fauci book. It's yeah. a very dense read. I did my, my best to get through it. Lots of footnotes. I like that. I apologize. Does, do, you, do you suffer from confirmation bias? Do you cite data that runs contrary to your view of the world specifically on this subject? I, I will tell you, no, I do not believe that I do that. And if you can show me a study that um, that is a you know a well-founded study that that uh, that challenges my um, my position. I'll just change my position because I don't you know no I'm not I am a I'm an evidence-based person. If I'm wrong about something, I admit I'm wrong and then I move on. And I you know and I'll I'll change my. But let me just say this: the California State Legislature got interested in this issue. And they uh, commissioned a study. They ordered UC Davis, the Mind Institute, a very famous scientist called Herbert Hertz Pachoda, to do that study using all of California's database, their educational health databases. And Herbert Hertz Pachoda came back and said, no, this is a real epidemic. It is not the result of diagnostic criteria, better recognition. And by the way, I was raised on the spear tip of the... Uh, of of the the movement to uh, to assign rights to to guarantee rights to people with intellectual disabilities, my aunt Eunice Shriver started Special Olympics. Sure. It was originally called Camp Shriver. I worked at it as a hugger and a coach from when I was eight years old. I spent 200 hours because you know the, the, this issue of intellectual disabilities was part of my family DNA. Um, I spent 200 hours in Los Angeles for the retarded when I was a teenager working. I never saw a person with full-blown autism at that time, never. And in Special Olympics, we prided ourselves on being able to handle every child, even kids who were basically in a vegetative state, and we would arrange games for them where they could push, sit on a table or a little platform and push a sandbag off, and everybody would cheer for them. We, could not, we never saw anybody we couldn't handle. We could not have handled a kid with autism. L let me accept... Let, let me just say why. Yeah. Because those kids have... Literally, for many of them, only their parents can come near them because they have light sensitivities, they have tactile sensitivities, they're violent. Uh, they engage in headbanging, biting, uh, screaming. They're, they're very, very uh, difficult to handle. The, the and we never saw a child like that. And by the way, I have never in my life seen a man my age with full-blown autism. Not once. I've never, where are these men, one out of every 22 men who are walking around the mall with helmets on, who are non-toilet trained, non-verbal, stimming, toe walking, hand flapping, I've never seen anything. Is there like a peer-reviewed research document that you can point me to that determines there's a direct causal connection between the vaccines, which you are so critical of, and autism? Many, many. Give me, many, give, many. give me one, and we'll let the fact-checking well, commence after you the program. Know, what I would suggest is I've, I've put, I mean, well, one of them would be the Verstraten study, which is a CDC study. So CDC actually was very worried about this in 1999, and CDC went out and looked at the, and took the vaccine safety data link, which is the biggest 
uh, repository of vaccine and health information. It is the medical records of the 10 biggest HMOs. So they have all your vaccine records in there, and they have all your And what's records. the conclusion, according to you? And well, when they looked at the hepatitis B vaccine, they, they compared children. They have millions of kids in this database. They compared children who got the hepatitis B vaccine in the first 30 days of life with children who did not. So children who got it later or didn't get it at all. And they found an 1,135% increased risk for autism diagnoses in children who got it. And what they did, we, we now... Maybe it's correlation, not causation. There are a lot of other environmental changes that have taken place in the world, right? True. And, and I do not and have never believed that autism, uh, the, the autism explosion... But now you got to let's notice that you're changing the argument here. The autism explosion is not the result of one uh, covariable. In other words, vaccines. There are children today are swimming around in a toxic soup, and the um, and the uh, and they're you know they're being exposed. In fact, there's scientists who've said, okay, this began in 1989, and when when. Congress wanted to know when did the autism epidemic began. They told the EPA to find out. The EPA scientists, EPA is a captured agency. It's captured by oil, gas, coal, and pesticides. It's not captured by pharma. So they actually did an honest study, and they said it's a red line. The autism epidemic began in 1989. So... There, there are several scientists, including a very famous toxicologist called Phil Landrian, who have done studies and said, what happened in 1989? You need, it has to be a toxic exposure, because genes do not cause epidemics. You need an environmental... But, they, you, but you focus all of... You know, I have to, I've got to shut this part of the conversation down. Or we'll quickly. never get to the campaign. I'll be very, I'll, I'll be very quick ahead. about this. There, what Landrian found is that there, there are about 11 or 12 possible... Uh, uh, culprits, and you know, one of those is glyphosate Roundup. You need something that became ubiquitous in '89 and touched every Democrat. Okay, but respectfully, I said to you, what's the study that's going to say it's autism? And you there, gave me there one. Are literally hundreds of studies. I have them all in my okay. book. All right, I, 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 we have them posted on our website at CHD, and I have them in my book on thimerosal. Let the science speak. I've, I've only one break that will take this hour. But we're going to take it now, then come back with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Thank you. The politics of the United States. For the people of the United States. Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. A Sirius XM town hall with 2024 Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. More with Michael Smirkanish coming up next. Catch up and listen again anytime on the SXM app. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer 
and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Smirconish program on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Now, back to a Sirius XM Town Hall with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., live from the historic Center Theater in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Here's Michael Smirconish. Check today's uh, poll results thus far. Media coverage of RFK Jr. Too much, too little, or like the porridge, just right. It's about a third, a third. I know how you'd answer. You don't have to answer the poll question. You'd say too little. But I'm encouraging people to hit the website and cast a ballot. More than 12,000 already have. What is your path to nomination victory? Well, my path is through the Democratic primary system. I have to win the primaries. And, you know, it's going to be an interesting because I think that – President Biden is not going to even put his name in in Iowa and New Hampshire. So I think he's not even going to compete. He's going to wait for South Carolina. Yeah. Is that so he doesn't have to debate you? Well, it's not. I think he does not. You know, I think that he he, he's never done well in New Hampshire. And um, I think he came in fifth in New Hampshire the last time. That's my memory. Um, So. I think that he, they, he did not want to compete in New Hampshire. And he wants to go to a state where they, I think they feel like uh, he has a, uh, that they can control the results more. Does he owe you a debate? I ask you this on CNN. You kind of took a pass. I was surprised. If you're at 19% according to Fox News or 20% according to CNN, at, at what point do you think he owes it to voters, the Democratic Party, to be on a stage with you, with Marianne Williamson, if she meets a criteria? Yeah, I mean, you asked me that, and I'm just, I'm giving you an answer that he, it's a strategic decision for him, and I don't think he, and he he can choose whether to debate or not. Oh, I think it's not to his advantage to debate me, and uh, I don't even know if President Trump will debate his opponents. So, you know, if you're, if you're, if, um, I, I think it would be a disadvantage for him to debate me, and I think he will try to avoid that. I, I think it's not, I, I don't think the optics are good for the, um, 
for the American people or through for our country abroad, because there's so many people now who believe that our whole system is rigged against them. And there are many, many Americans who believe that the election system is rigged. And we, both political parties, I would say, ought to be making a big effort to show that, you know, we are templates of democracy, that our democracy functions, that they're doing retail politics, that they're having town halls like this one, that they're out meeting the public and, and debating their opponents. And they're not, it's not like the Soviet system where the party I, would, you know, pick the candidates and then... I'm respectful of civility. I'm all about having the dialogue. I know your approach is the same. But you seem awfully reluctant to take him on substantively or in any other way. Am I wrong in saying that? No, no, I take him on substance. Tell me, tell me the sharpest area of disagreement that you have with Joe Biden. I, I think the sharpest area, well, I, I would say two areas. One, he has surrounded himself with neocons who are, for people who don't know what a neocon is, it's a, it's a group of people um, that emerged in the late 90s um, and early 2000s. Uh, really around 1997, who um, who believed that the collapse of the Soviet Union meant that the United States had earned the ability to rule the world for the next 100 years or so. And they published a study called the uh, uh, Project for a New American Century. In other words, the century would be owned by America and that we should use our um, our military superiority to exact, to essentially uh, subdue the goal the the world, and they were the group who were very very visible. I think there were twenty two of them in the Bush administration, and you know George W. Bush, the Bush two's administration, and they're the ones that gave us the Iraq War. There was no reason for invading Iraq. Um, Iraq never did anything right, to our country. That was W. That was not Biden. Yeah, but it was the same group of people. It was Victoria Newland, and you know, Avril Haines was in that, and all, you know, the same people who are now, who we thought were exiled because of that catastrophe and would never be back in politics again. But President Biden, who has always been, you know, pro-war. Um, he fought my uncle, you know, over the Iraq War, and he was the leader of that in the Senate. He now has surrounded himself with those same people and, uh, and you know, has a very belligerent foreign policy. Are we policy. talking about Ukraine now? Well, Ukraine is one. Okay. Uh, so on, on your website, here's, here's something that caught my eye. In Ukraine, the most important priority is to end the suffering of the Ukrainian people, victims of a brutal Russian invasion, and also victims of American geopolitical machinations going back to at least 2014. That sounds like moral equivalency. Do you see moral equivalency between our foreign policy and what Putin did in invading Ukraine? I think that we had a significant role in provoking the Russians to invade Ukraine. And that role, and, if you, and now that you've asked the question, you should give me a chance to explain why. Yeah. Um, so, the, the, you know, when the Russians disbanded, when Gorbachev disbanded the Soviet Union in 1992, he made a huge concession to the West, which was to allow the reunification of Germany under NATO. So the Russians had 400,000 troops in East Germany. And he said to, NATO, he said to, the, to uh, uh, President Bush at that time and to um, uh, Tony Blair, I will move our troops out and allow you, 
the, basically the enemy army to occupy now both uh, sections of Germany with one condition, that you not move NATO further to the east. So, and everybody agreed, NATO would not move into the countries that the, that the Soviet Union was, was withdrawing from. Um, then Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1997, who was the first neocon, published a paper in which he outlined the inclusion in NATO of all of the countries that left the Soviet Union, and they immediately started out. That was such a violation of good statesmanship that uh, George Kennan, who was the leading uh, diplomat in our country, probably the most important diplomat in American history, he was the architect of the containment policy during the Civil War, during the Cold War. He was the architect of U.S. Cold War policy. He said, if you do that, it's going to force the Soviet, it will be a calamity. It will force the Soviet, the Russians, into a violent response because you're surrounding them, you're encircling them. And Russia has been repeatedly invaded. And we moved NATO not only one inch, but 14 countries we included, a thousand miles to the east, and we installed missile systems that are nuclear capable in Romania and Poland. Bill Perry, who was then the Secretary of State, or Secretary of Defense, from the Clinton administration, threatened to resign if we move NATO to the east. Bill, um, uh, Bill Burns, who was then the Soviet ambassador, and is now the head of the CIA, also threatened to resign. He said, if you move NATO to the east, you're crossing a red line and you're going to force the Soviets to attack us. This is something we knew. And we went in in 2014, overthrew the government, the elected government of the Ukraine, which was pro-Russian, and installed our own government, which then mounted a civil war against Donbass. So this war started not in 2022, in February, but in 2014. And that is what triggered the Soviet invade, the Russian invasion of Crimea, which was a rational response because the Russians had that was their only warm water port for 370 years, and now they're faced with an, an antagonistic government inviting the U.S. Navy to occupy their port. Let's talk about what you would do. Back to the website. We will offer to withdraw our troops and nuclear-capable missiles from Russia's borders. Russia will withdraw its troops from Ukraine and guarantee its freedom and independence. What nuclear-capable missiles specifically are you referring to that we would withdraw? The Aegis missile systems that Lockheed manufactures and that we have put on, on Russia's border. But, but in, be specific when in, you say border, because I'm thinking Turkey only, which has a maritime border. I can't think of any other missiles we put on their border. That's why I'm asking the question. Romania and Poland. I mean, you were at Romania. Poland, Poland. Poland separated by, by Ukraine. Oh, okay, well, Romania and Poland. That's where we have the Aegis missile systems, and that's why they don't want it. One of the reasons they don't want us in Ukraine. They, they, Ukraine is 400 miles from Moscow. Uh, we, and they have been invaded three times through Ukraine. The last time the Russians were invaded through Ukraine, it, one out of every seven Russians died. When my uncle, President Kennedy, said, if you want to have peace, you need to understand your adversary. You need to be able to put yourself in the position of your adversary and understand. And that's why, you know, when, when the Russians put nuclear missiles in Cuba in 62, and I was, you know, a young kid, but I was being hauled off by the U.S. Marshals 
to this underground city in school. Yeah, in, I've read know, the story. Right, um, and but an, an hour. But my my uncle solved that problem because he would have had to invade Cuba, but he solved that problem by making a deal with the Russians to remove our Jupiter missiles from Turkey if they moved their missiles from Cuba. I know how it ended, and Robert. We were, an hour is not enough with you. <laughs> on this, on the program, in the final few minutes with callers, we do lightning round, okay? Let's make this a lightning round. <laughs> okay. It caught my eye that you have a photograph, maybe just because it's a hell of a picture, of yourself in the Oval Office with Ronald Reagan. That, too, is part of your campaign presentation. Short answer, what kind of a president was Ronald Reagan? I think, you know, I didn't like the way that he governed or his governing priorities. I didn't like... Uh, the attack on the, you know, the wholesale attack on our environmental laws that took place during the Reagan administration. But um, Reagan did something for our country, particularly coming out of uh, Jimmy Carter's administration, where we had, by everybody's account, a malaise, where Americans no longer felt pride in their country. Do we have that now? Yeah, I think we have worse than a malaise. I think President people, Biden's fault? No, but I think his his government is part of the problem. His governing style that you know we 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 need to disband the American imperium abroad. We need to start focusing on um, on what's happening in our country. You know, I represent uh, a thousand families in Columbia and a county in Ohio, and many families in Western Pennsylvania and Western um, West Virginia. In that whose lives were upended by the Norfolk Southern spill. And so I go to those counties, I go into people's homes, and I see the way that Americans are living today in a, in a level, the middle class in this country has been obliterated. People are living at a, de at a level of desperation that I never saw in the United States when I was a kid. I saw it in Latin America, but I never saw it here. And, you know, in 1970, uh, 62% of American income went to the middle class in our country. Today, it's 42%. And that alone, and then the super rich were then getting 29%. Today, this is the 1%, of the 1% are getting 50%. I get it. Barlett and, and Steele are Philly guys. They wrote the book, America, What Went Wrong, decades uh, ago. Let me, keep, let me keep moving. And, and if you're asking Biden's uh, responsibility of that, the, the lockdowns, which were Biden and Trump, that was a $16 trillion expense for which we got nothing. We shifted $4 trillion from the middle class to the super rich. We created a billionaire a day during the lockdowns. And, you know, and it, 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 it was the last breath of the American middle class. On radio here on POTUS, on CNN as well, I entertained all those voices that you rely on. The, the Barrington Declaration. Good for you, Jay, Michael. Jay, well, as you can imagine, not too popular in some quarters, right? So I, I get that argument, but I have to say, now we're going to go back down the rabbit hole. You come to very nefarious conclusions or you paint a nefarious picture with regard to Dr. Fauci that I, I just never thought was the case. You know, uh, I never look into Dr. Fauci's head. I know, but, but, I the, never the, the, say, way, but the way you make the case, it, it well, leaves that impression. So your problem then is with facts because no, that's no. all I have in that book. It's, I, don't, I don't say he's an evil... You know, he's an evil, conniving guy. No, who but, is, but, but you, but you do I just say he kept, us, he kept us from real solutions. He would yeah. have to, be, but but Robert, well, he did. He, Robert, he would have to be, but with the knowledge you impart to him, imply to him, he would have had to have, be diabolical in his thinking. That, keep, that is your conclusion, and I think it's a fair one. 
I never said. Then why don't? Then why don't you just say it? If that's what you think, I, I would respect it more. Because than, that's my, what I think. Because my, you know, what I try to do is be very disciplined about just relaying facts, and I can prove, and not speculating about what Bill Gates is thinking about, what Tony Fauci. What you're saying is the conclusions that you made from my recitation of facts. Show me where I got the facts wrong. My belief, in, and I read the book. I, I, I read the book, and I'm glad that I did read the book. But my belief was that, and I wanted us to be much more open. What I found attractive about what, what the, the, the people at Barrington were saying at the time is that maybe we need to protect them. And I said it on air. They'll all back me up. At the time, I thought maybe we need to protect the most vulnerable and contemplate herd immunity protect those people because I had I had and that's not a new thought that was the protocol for ever for WHI for I had my wife and I had sons on campuses across America all rushing home because the schools were closing and at the time I said on air maybe we'd be better served instead of running them through airports if we everybody just stayed right in place so it, it didn't make sense to me, but I thought that Fauci and others around him were looking at the here and now of people dying instead of the economic and emotional and mental health calamity that would result. But I didn't think it was because they had information that they were keeping from us. Let me keep moving, if you don't mind, real quick, okay? You're an environmental lawyer, but let's look at the Constitution together on guns, the language of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. You know that in Heller, Justice Scalia recognized an independent right to gun ownership apart from militia. Did he get that wrong? Why would that have been worded in the way that it was worded unless it was to be tied to a militia? I think you can argue it either way. How do you argue it? I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to relitigate the Supreme Court case. The Supreme Court, you know, has made its declaration about what the, what the Second Amendment says. My, you know, I I believe in the Constitution, and I'm not going to take anybody's guns away. I, you know, I believe in the Constitution. I and I think also. And by the way, I had two family members who were killed by gun violence, so I understand the anguish and the pain of people now every day we're having you know gun violence directed against our children we need to figure out some way to deal with that but i think you know talking about taking people's guns away at this point in history particularly is you know i've lived in rural areas my whole life my clients are rural people i've represented hood hood hook and gun uh, hook and bullet people from the beginning of my environmental career and Are you going to tinker I, around the margins no, I, with AR weaponry? That's what I'm saying. I think, you, you know, you can tinker around the margins and, you know, hopefully you can do that with a consensus, but it's not going to solve the problem. And nobody really believes that it is. And I think we need to protect our children, even if it means um, doing the same thing we do at airports. But I also think... And, you know, we don't. People don't get guns onto airports and uh, and you know, onto airlines, and that stopped because we made a national determination that it was worth going through the you know the the nuisance of of protecting them. We need to do that same thing for our children until we can build a consensus on guns and how to handle them. I also think, Michael, that it's very important to look at the role of psychiatric drugs in these shootings. And, you know, particularly the SSRIs and the Bentos, because there's no we we are using those like nobody else in the world. And if you look at the manufacturer's inserts for those uh, pharmaceuticals, 
They hope most of them say suicidal and homicidal ideation on them as side effects. And there are other countries in the world, like Switzerland, has as many guns as we do per capita. And they don't, the last school shooting. Much more they, stringently regulated than, than are ours. Yeah, the last me, school shooting they had was 21 years ago. I'll be we have one every 21 hours. I'll be there. need to look at that. If I don't get abortion into this conversation, Dobbs overturned Roe. Was the, the Roe opinion on solid legal foundation. I'm sure you read Roe over the years, recognizing a right to an abortion coming out of substantive due process of the 14th Amendment. Were were you okay with the way in which Roe was reasoned, is my specific question. Yeah, and I've, you know, I I don't think there's anybody, I I can argue there's nobody in this country who has worked harder for the rights of medical freedom and uh, personal bodily autonomy than me, and that applies to vaccines, it also applies to abortion. I don't think the government should be telling us what to do with our bodies and dictating that to Americans, what we can and cannot do. And I think in the first three months of pregnancy that, you know, it's a, it's a woman's, it's a woman's choice and it's solely up to the woman. I, I'm not going to, no matter how you get there, you're not going to take my bait on, on the constitutional aspect. No, of because it. It, it, it's kind of wasted breath because at this stage. Yeah. Okay. Final subject. Got to get into this. I'm surprised you're not trying to own this given the concerns that you've expressed over public health. Also something I brought up to you on, on CNN, the CDC in February released the youth risk behavior study most teen girls, 57%, felt persistently sad or hopeless. That's in 2021. Double the rate for boys, nearly one in three girls seriously considered attempting suicide. I think the number is a quarter who've actually made a plan. Do you draw a causal connection between that and social media and the tech giants? Uh, I think those things, I think that lockdowns impacted, and I think that also uh, pharmaceutical drugs, including vaccines. In fact, there's a... Um, there's a, a study that Yale produced that, you know, that, um, and there are many, many studies so yes, that, that yes link and depression more. and anorexia and OCD and a lot of these things that we see, problems that we see in young women to, uh, to early vaccinations. Uh, will you come back if I still have a job? <laughs> I don't think you're going to have a job, but you can come work for the campaign, Michael. <laughs> Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you all. Appreciate you very much for being here. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.